Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, after 11 days and thousands of rockets and missiles unleashed in hostility, a fragile ceasefire has taken hold in Israel. I will ask the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, what comes next. We'll keep the Middle East conversation going with a terrific panel, Peter Beinart, Noura Arakat, and Dan Senor. I will also talk to Zachary Carabell about his terrific new book on American capitalism. And we'll explore why the Arctic may be the next great region of global discord. But first, here's my take. It's been the same way for decades. Every time violence between the Israelis and Palestinians erupts, governments around the world urge de-escalation, a ceasefire agreement is reached, and experts warn the situation cannot continue like this. But it has, and it will. Ultimately, this is not a problem that can be resolved through power, whether political or military. It can only be resolved through moral persuasion. The recurring pattern of violence obscures a seismic shift that has taken place over the last few decades. Israel is now the superpower of the Middle East. An institute at Bar-Ilan University recently laid out the disparities. Israel's per capita GDP dwarfs that of its neighbors. It is 14 times that of Egypt, 8 times that of Iran, 6 times that of Lebanon, and even double that of Saudi Arabia. Israel has built an industrial and information age economy that excels in highly sophisticated arenas like artificial intelligence, aviation, computer-aided design, and biotechnology. It spends 5% of its GDP on research and development, more than any country on the planet. It has built up foreign exchange reserves of over $180 billion, placing it 13th in the world, just ahead of the United Kingdom. For a nation of 9 million people, these are stunning numbers. A military comparison between Israel and its neighbors is even more lopsided. Israel beat a combined Arab force in 1967 in six days. Today, the contest would be over in hours. Israel has a larger defense budget than Iran's and enjoys both a quantitative and qualitative edge in crucial areas such as air power, even though Iran has almost 10 times the population. And of course, Israel has the only nuclear weapons arsenal in the region, estimated at almost 100 warheads. Israel is powerful compared to its neighbors, but it is close to invulnerable compared to the Palestinians. The economic gap is a chasm. The military gap is too large to describe. You can see this in the comparative casualty numbers from the latest conflict or any recent conflict with the Palestinians. For every Israeli killed, there are 20 to 30 Palestinian deaths. 
Moreover, the Palestinians are politically weak and divided. They're led in Gaza by Hamas, a group despised even by Arab states like Egypt and Saudi Arabia. In the West Bank, the 85-year-old Mahmoud Abbas runs an administration widely considered corrupt and dysfunctional. He has postponed elections for 11 years. In short, Israel doesn't have any practical reasons to make a deal with the Palestinians. It doesn't fear for its security. While the rocket attacks are unnerving and terrifying to civilians, they do not inflict much damage on the country. Israel's ferocious and effective security services, aided by the construction of a wall along the West Bank and the creation of the Iron Dome air defense system, have virtually eliminated fatalities from terror attacks. Economic boycotts of any significance will not happen. Israel's economy is too strong, diversified, and advanced. Its trade and technology ties to countries have grown by leaps and bounds in the last two decades. Countries like Russia and India, once very wary of it, now eagerly court Israel and its tech industry. The reason that Arab countries like the UAE and Bahrain have normalized relations with Israel has much to do with economic opportunities. So what is left is morality. Israel, a powerful, rich, and secure nation, is ruling over nearly 5 million people without giving them political rights. This is an almost unique situation in a post-colonial world. Israeli leaders can marshal valid excuses. The Palestinian leadership have rejected serious offers in the past. They are divided and vacillating. But ultimately, that doesn't change the reality that Palestinians live in conditions that are demeaning and degrading. They are denied self-determination, which is by now a universal right. Over the last two decades, Israel has moved to a more and more intransigent position on the Palestinian issue. The government today is far more extreme than even previous right-wing governments, from Begin to Sharon to Omert, all of which made concessions for peace. But the country does remain a liberal democracy. It was founded by people who believed deeply that their new land should embody not just nationalism, but also justice and morality. There are many in Israel who argue passionately that it can find a way for Israelis to have security and Palestinians to have dignity. The only hope, and right now it looks remote, is that those forces will gain strength and one day lead the country to give the Palestinians a state of their own. That would finally fulfill Israel's true historical mission, to be, in the words of Isaiah, a light unto the nations. Go to cnn.com slash Farid for a link to my Washington Post column. Let's get started. Joining me now is the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Welcome, Mr. Secretary. Thanks, Reed. It's great to be with you. Um, President Biden says that he thinks now that there is a ceasefire uh, in, between the Israelis and Palestinians, there is a significant opportunity uh, for even more positive developments, or genuine opportunity, I think, if I'm quoting him correctly. And I'm wondering... Is there really? I mean, you have an Israeli government that seems pretty unyielding. You have a Palestinian authority led by an 85-year-old man who doesn't, you know, is too scared to hold elections for fear of what will happen. Hamas controls Gaza. 
is there really a prospect of, uh, of some kind of movement towards a genuine political solution? Fried, I think there has to be. Um, I think both sides are reminded that we have to find a way uh, to break this cycle, because if we don't, it will repeat itself at, at great cost and at great uh, human suffering on all sides. Look, we worked very hard with this um, intense but behind-the-scenes diplomacy to get to the ceasefire. Uh, and I think President Biden, uh, leading this effort, made the judgment that we could be uh, most effective uh, in, in, in doing that. Uh, and ultimately, after uh, this intensive effort across the government, uh, we got to where everyone wanted to, to be, which was to, to end the violence. But now, as the president said, I think it's incumbent upon all of us uh, to try to make the turn uh, to, to start to build something more positive. And what that means at heart is that uh, Palestinians and Israelis alike have to know in their day in and day out lives equal measures of uh, opportunity, of security, uh, of dignity, something that, <laughs> that you touched on uh, in, your, uh, in your piece in The Washington Post this week. Um, will you use as a template uh, the last peace plan put forward by the United States government? That is the peace plan shepherded by Jared Kushner. Look, I don't think we're at the, uh, in, in a place where the getting to some kind of uh, negotiation for, the, for, for what ultimately I think has to be the result, which is a two-state solution, is the first order of business. We have to start building back in concrete ways and offering uh, some genuine uh, hope, prospects, uh, opportunity in the lives of, uh, of people. And, of course, in the first instance, we've got to deal with uh, the humanitarian situation, uh, which is grave uh, in, uh, in Gaza. Uh, we've got to start uh, to bring countries together to support reconstruction and development. And as we're doing that, we'll be reengaging uh, with the Palestinians, of course, continuing our deep engagement uh, with the Israelis and trying to put in place conditions that uh, allow us uh, over time hopefully, uh, to advance a genuine uh, peace process. But that is not the, uh, the immediate order of business. We have a lot of work to do to get to that point. But does the United States government still endorse the outlines of that plan? We're going to look at everything uh, that's, uh, that's been done before, uh, learn from that, just as we have uh, in, uh, in other areas, uh, and see what, uh, what makes sense and, and what doesn't. But our focus right now, relentlessly, is on uh, dealing with the humanitarian situation, uh, starting to be uh, to do reconstruction rebuild uh, and engage intensely with uh, with everyone with Palestinians with Israelis with partners uh, in the region uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu says that he will form a national unity government but not with any Israeli Arabs uh, in it Israeli Arabs as you know make up 20 percent mm -hmm. of the population of Israel is that a positive step look I don't uh, I don't do politics, whether it's our politics or Israeli politics. Uh, they have to make their own judgments, and uh, a government will be formed <laughs> eventually one way uh, or another. We leave that to the Israelis, but we will work with, uh, uh, the, the, obviously, the current Israeli government, whatever go government uh, emerges from the current uh, process, uh, and it's really a, a decision for, uh, for Israelis to make, not us. But you have been very uh, clear in, in being in favor of democracy and worrying about the decay of democracy in, in countries. Is it a step forward for democracy, for a national government to explicitly on racial lines rule out 20 percent of its population? Look, one thing that's been, uh, I think, deeply disturbing about recent events um, has been the intercommunal violence. And that's something that uh, we have not seen. 
uh, at least in, in, in recent years. And I, uh, I believe and I hope that um, Israelis of all persuasions will find ways to come together uh, to try to um, make sure that that doesn't uh, happen again. And hopefully that finds expression as well uh, in, um, in their politics and in their governance. But again, these are decisions for Israelis to make, not for us. Let me ask you while we're on the Middle East, Mr. Secretary, uh, the Biden administration, President Biden, when he was uh, campaigning, said, as soon as I become president, we will rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. The Iranians said the same thing. We're now uh, four months into the administration. I, nothing has happened. Uh, both sides said there seems to be a, a, something of a standoff. And Iran is, meanwhile, busily enriching the very thing people like you warned about when, mm. again, when uh, Joe Biden was campaigning. Isn't this a failure of diplomacy? Shouldn't you guys have been able to get, get back into the deal within a week or two? Two things, Fareed. First, I think the steps that Iran uh, is taking uh, underscore the uh, urgency of uh, trying to get Iran back into compliance with its obligations under the nuclear deal, the deal that stopped uh, their, uh, uh, the dangerous aspects of their nuclear program, the prospect that they could have fissile material for a nuclear weapon on, on short order. Um, we've had, uh, I think, five rounds of uh, conversations now, of talks now, indirect uh, in Vienna. And in fact, our team's going back to Vienna in the coming days uh, to pursue that. I think we've actually made progress in clarifying what, uh, what each side needs to do to get back into full compliance. The, the, the outstanding question, the question that we don't have an answer to uh, yet, is whether Iran, at the end of the day, is willing to do what is necessary uh, to come back into compliance with the agreement. That's the proposition that, uh, that we're testing. But it's getting, I think, uh, through these rounds of, uh, of discussions and talks, clearer and clearer what needs to happen. Uh, the question is, is Iran prepared to do it? Well, the Iranians say that that's actually not what's happening. The United States, the Biden administration, has moved the goalposts. That uh, rather than talking about simply both sides getting back to the original deal, com doing what was required to comply, uh, the uh, Biden administration is now saying they want to talk about ballistic missiles, they want to talk about regional issues, they want to talk about extending the timeline. Are you willing to go back to the original deal as, as, as it was? Because the Iranians say they are willing to get back to that tomorrow. Fareed, we've been very clear. We are fully prepared to go back to the original deal as it was. That's, that's our initial objective. Uh, and we, again, we don't know if the, if, if the Iranians are. If we do, if we succeed in that, then we can use that as a foundation, uh, both to look at how we can make the deal itself uh, potentially longer and stronger, and also engage on these other issues, whether it's Iran's support for, uh, for terrorism, uh, its proliferation, uh, its uh, destabilizing support for different proxies throughout the Middle East. Uh, all of that does need to be uh, engaged in something we need to deal with. But we've been very clear that from our perspective, the first step needs to be a, a return to mutual compliance. That's what we're working on, and that's where we still don't know if Iran is willing uh, to say yes. Saudi Arabia says that it now is willing to contemplate better relations with Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, is this a recognition uh, by Saudi Arabia that its uh, strategy so far has not really worked? Is it, a, is it a sign that we could see a peace deal in Yemen and we could see an easing of tensions over places like Qatar and Lebanon? Well, there needs to be a, a peace deal in, in Yemen. We're working uh, very hard on that. We've been doing that uh, from day one. Uh, and I think uh, Saudi Arabia is clearly indicated uh, by some of the things that it's done that it uh, now wants to move in that direction. So that, uh, that's very positive. Uh, we need to get the, the Houthis to come along. And that, in turn, 
I think depends significantly on whether uh, Iran is ready to make clear to the Houthis that they need to uh, engage positively uh, and need to uh, resolve this war. So to the extent that there is um, a better relationship between Saudi Arabia uh, and Iran, that can produce or help produce at least more positive results in ending some of these other conflicts, ending some of these proxy battles, which are incredibly dangerous, uh, incredibly potentially destabilizing and have a real human toll. And do you see a shift in Saudi foreign policy? Look, my sense is that, uh, again, on, on Yemen in particular, uh, where we've engaged intensely, uh, we have a, a senior envoy who's doing this every single day. Uh, the Saudis have been engaged uh, productively in trying to bring this war uh, to an end. Uh, we need to see the same kind of response for the Houthis who continue uh, to hold out. Uh, and Iran should use the influence it has to move them in that direction. You just met with uh, the Russian foreign minister, Lavrov. And I was wondering, I mean, this is a country that uh, has, by the uh, acknowledgement of U.S. intelligence, engaged in what is po possibly the largest cyber hack of America ever, uh, massed 100,000 troops on Ukraine's border, uh, and still continues to, in various ways, oppose U.S. interests um, mm. and act uh, essentially to kind of act as a spoiler on the world stage. Did you feel like you saw any possibility of, of any of that changing? Look, we had, uh, I think, a constructive, uh, very businesslike conversation over the course of, of nearly two hours. But President Biden has been very clear with, with President Putin. And I uh, repeated what, uh, what President Biden said to President Putin uh, to uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov. And that's this. We would prefer uh, to have a more stable, predictable relationship with Russia. <laughs> We've all got lots of things going on uh, around the world and lots of work that we're trying to do to make uh, the lives of our citizens a, a little bit better. A more stable, predictable relationship with them, I think, would be good for us, good for them, and I'd even argue good for, good for the world. And there are clearly areas where it's in our mutual interest to find ways to cooperate, whether it's on Afghanistan, uh, whether it's on so-called strategic stability, arms control agreements, um, whether it's uh, on uh, dealing with, uh, with climate change. But equally clear, and the president has been um, uh, very resolute on this. If Russia uh, continues to take reckless and aggressive actions aimed at us or aimed at our allies or partners, we will respond. Not for purposes of escalating, not to seek conflict, but to defend our interests. And that was the nature of the conversation that, uh, that I had with Foreign Minister Lavrov. It's really important to be very clear about uh, what, you're, uh, what you're doing, why you're doing it. And ultimately, it is up to Russia to decide whether it wants to uh, have that more predictable, stable uh, relationship. We, we need to test the proposition. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, thank you for coming on, on the show. Thanks for having me, Fried. It's great to be with you. Next on GPS, we have a terrific panel to talk more about what is actually going on in the Middle East. The Israeli Defense Forces say that they struck more than 1,500 targets in Gaza and that more than 4,000 rockets were fired at Israel. But for now, the skies above Israel and Gaza are quiet. Let me bring in today's panel. Peter Beinhardt is a CNN political commentator and the author of the Beinhardt Notebook on Substack. Dan Sinner was a foreign policy advisor to Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan. He is the author of Startup Nation, the story of Israel's economic miracle. And Nora Arakat is a professor at Rutgers and the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Um, let me start with you, Dan Sinor. Um, can you tell us what do you think uh, was going on in terms of the violence 
because it all seemed to come, or at least almost all of it, from Gaza and directed by Hamas. I think that what Hamas is doing in Gaza, keep in mind, Israel left Gaza in 2005, completely left it intact. It's part of an effort to gradually get to a place where there's a two-state solution. Hamas took over in Gaza, and up until recently, Hamas's entire play has been, you know, the politics of Gaza and waging war from Gaza against Israel. What we're seeing now is an internal play, an internal Palestinian politics, where Hamas is truly trying to marginalize and ultimately, you know, sideline or displace Ramallah, the Palestinian Authority, uh, Fatah, Abu Mazen, and really become the kind of pan-Palestinian power player to be the voice of the Gazans, to be the voice of the Palestinians in the West Bank, and to be the voice of Israeli Arab citizens living in Israel. And their charter, the Hamas charter, is very clear on this front, that there is no space for Jews in that region, that Israel must be wiped out. It was one thing when Israel was make, was at war with Hamas in Gaza, and there was about issues around you know tensions over these Israeli-Gaza border. What's happening now is you have a government in Gaza that is committed in its charter to Israel's complete destruction. And now they're trying to wage that fight on behalf of all the power centers within the Palestinian community. Nora, what does this look uh, look like from the Palestinian point of view? I just want to correct the speaker before you that Israel unilaterally withdrew from the Gaza Strip but maintained control of the sea space, the aerial space, even the water under the ground, the caloric intake of Palestinians has maintained control of the Gaza Strip, remains the occupying power. All of its leaders successively have said and made clear there will be no Palestinian state. This wasn't a faith-building exercise. Most significantly, it's important to remember that this is not Israel's problem with Hamas. This is Israel's problem with Palestinians. For 73 years, Israel has attempted to fragment Palestinians, separate them from one another, and undermine their national liberation movement, at which seeks to simply remain and belong on their lands. By pointing to Hamas, it's a red herring, and obscuring that this is a liberation movement, this is a movement against settler colonialism, which seeks to remove Palestinians and place Jewish Zionist settlers in their place. This is a movement to end apartheid, which Human Rights Watch, as well as Beit Salem, an Israeli human rights organization, has said governs the life of all Palestinians across Gaza, the West Bank, within Israel, and throughout the diaspora. Um, Peter, this all began because of the eviction of, of uh, uh, Palestinians in East Jerusalem. Uh, Explain the significance of that from your point of view. The significance is, is that Israel was created with an act of mass expulsion of Palestinians, more than 700,000. Israel had another mass expulsion in 1967. Israel has continued to expel Palestinians from their homes and from their homeland ever since it was created. So as you might imagine, the eviction of Palestinians from their homes cuts very deep for Palestinians. And it's critical to remember that Palestinians in East Jerusalem, like Palestinians in the West Bank, like Palestinians in Gaza, do, are not citizens of the country that controls their life. That means they are essentially powerless over the decisions that are made about them. And that's why Palestinians can be evicted from their homes in a way that could never be done to Jews inside Israel, because they don't have the most basic of human rights, the right to be a citizen of the country in which you live. Uh Dan, I, I, I want to give you a quick, yeah, I want to give you a quick response and then yeah. we got to go to a break. Okay, I, I just want to be clear. 
Israeli governments, left, center, and right, have been committed to a two-state solution. I agree that Palestinians do not have the rights that they should have. That's why they need their own state. That's why Israeli leaders from 1993 to 2000 to 2008 have been consistently trying to provide a process that would give the Palestinians their own. Withdrawing out of, from Gaza was a unilateral action, that is true, with the hope that would be on a path to giving the Palestinians their own sovereign state. Unfortunately, Palestinian leadership, specifically Hamas, will not take yes for an answer. All right, we are going to get back to all of this in a moment. And we are back with Peter Beinert, Dan Sinor, and Nora Arakat. Uh, Nora, let me ask you, uh, picking up on what Dan Sinor said, uh, there, I think would generally be there are many people who believe that the Palestinian cause is just, but that its leadership has not been particularly wise. It, it hasn't negotiated seriously going back to, say, the 2000 uh, deal uh, between Arafat and, uh, the, and the Israelis. Uh, how would you respond to that? I would respond that no matter what leadership we've had, Israel has continued its talking point that it has no serious negotiating partner. I would emphasize to the audience that we remain a stateless people without an army or even an airport and continue to struggle under apartheid and occupation despite all odds. It's a lot to ask of us to then have a more robust leadership when our best leaders are assassinated, exiled and imprisoned, a condition that we can't impose on Israelis because the power differential is real. We are under apartheid. I want to emphasize that the two-state solution has been long dead and is used as a liberal veneer in order to continue this violence. The U.S. provides Israel with $3.8 billion a year, has issued 43 Security Council vetoes to impede an international resolution to this issue, to the Palestinian question, as well as to protect Israel from any accountability. If you really want to see some sort of just outcome, then you must place sanctions on Israel. Then you must hold Israel to account. You must support Palestinians and recognize this power imbalance. And all people can become involved through participating in boycott, divestment, and sanctions, which is a robust, nonviolent movement for all of those who are preaching to Palestinians that they have to be nonviolent. We have been. You're not paying attention. And we have thousands of Gandhis who are dying and being killed every day because of this obstinate, obstinate refusal. Uh, Peter, let me ask you about what you think, whether there is a shift uh, in Israel or among American Jews with regard to some of these issues. And I ask this because you've just written a very uh, powerful, whether people will agree with or not, is, of course, a, a different matter, uh, article called Teshuva, a Jewish case for Palestinian refugee return. Um, it's really w worth reading, as I said, whatever, whatever one thinks about it, a very brave piece. The New Yorker has done a profile on you on the basis of it. Are you sensing that there is a shift in, uh, in public opinion? There's a shift in public opinion in the United States, including among young, many younger American Jews, because of a recognition that there's a fundamental similarity between the struggle that Americans are engaged in here, between a country that really has equality under the law for all people, and a vision of a country that has a series of hierarchies based on white 
Christian supremacy, something that Jews particularly react viscerally against. And there is a similar struggle, as painful as it is for many of us like me, who were raised in very, very Zionist homes, as painful as it is for us to recognize as Jews, there is a similar struggle going on in Israel-Palestine between a vision of equality under the law and a vision of Jewish supremacy, a vision in which Jews have rights that Palestinians don't have, that Jews dominate Palestinians in virtually every facet of their life. And for me, as a Jew, as a practicing Jew, that's a desecration of the fundamental belief that all people have infinite value in the image of God, and that includes Palestinians. Dan Senor, I want you to give you a chance to respond. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's important to make clear if you're going to point to Peter's piece, you should also point to another piece he wrote in which he came out saying he's against the existence of a Jewish state. So Peter doesn't support the existence of a Jewish state. Nora has been very outspoken that Israel has no right to defend against attacks in any part of Israel. So rockets are flying from Gaza into towns like Ashkelon and Ashdod and Beersheba, parts of the country that were never disputed. When we talk about a two-state solution going back to 1967 borders, it was always assumed that those towns would never be part of a future Palestinian state. What she is saying is it's all up for grabs now. So basically, we're no longer debating 1967 borders. As she's been very clear, we're debating 1948, the independence, the Israel's right to an independent sovereign state, which, again, Peter says we shouldn't have it all anyways. So I think we should just be honest about what we're talking about here. But Peter and Noura and the people they speak for, including the, the Hamas charter, by the way, says there is no space for a Jewish state. If we want to have a discussion about Palestinian rights to self-determination, which I support, which the overwhelming majority of Israelis support, let's do it in the context of a two-state solution, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. You can't do it if, as Nora and Peter say, the Jewish people should not have their own independent state. All right. Peter, I'm going to give you 20 seconds to uh, to explain you're in favor of one state for Jews and Palestinians, right? Equality with, with Palestinians, respect, equality under the law has been very good for Jews around the world. All right. We are going to have to get back to this issue again because it is not going away. But I thank you all for a serious conversation. Next on GPS, the pandemic accelerated America's ongoing reckoning with capitalism. Where will that end? That story when we come back. The global financial crisis of 2008 sparked calls for a new kind of capitalism, less risky, less rapacious. The pandemic has ramped up those demands with everyone from Elizabeth Warren to hedge fund billionaire Ray Dalio joining in. But a new history of American capitalism suggests that the answer isn't just new regulations and taxes. Zachary Carabell describes an older financial partnership model epitomized by the firm Brown Brothers Harriman in which banks bet with their own money and an older elite had an ethos that emphasized not more, more and more, but enough. It's all in his new book, Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. So we're in the midst of a big debate about the future of capitalism. And there are people in Washington who want to change it by fundamentally regulating and taxing it. The, the message of your book, it seems to me, is that there's something much deeper that needs to change, which is the kind of fundamental attitude of capitalism's elites. That's absolutely true. One thing I gleaned from doing this book, 
but probably thought about before was that a lot of what we have now in terms of the capitalism of more, 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 always more, um, is not the capitalism that we've always had, and that that's not a product of a massive regulatory state 150 years ago. It's a product of a different culture and a different attitude toward where capitalism fits within the social framework, that is part of a lattice of private good and public good, and that elites at an earlier point probably were more cognizant of the fact that they had to attend to that public good and that relentlessly pursuing more, their own more, uh, risk beggaring the commons in a way that would ultimately produce less for them and less for the collective. And explain how Brown Brothers exemplifies this, because at the, at the heart of it, it seems to me, is that those that old model of finance that you describe so well in the book fundamentally depended upon people betting with their own money rather than other people's money. Yeah, and that's exactly the, it's the other people's money phenomenon. So when all these companies, when all the, the financial firms that we know now that are both famous and infamous, the, the Lehman Brothers and the Goldman Sachs, they all went public in the, starting in the 70s and into the early 90s. And so these private partnerships, which had predominated in the financial world, were always limited by how much capital the partners themselves wanted to put up. Every deal they did, they knew they could lose their own money not other people's money. And as many people have said, we, we live in a world now where gains have been privatized, but risk goes to the public. So you get bailed out by the Federal Reserve or by you know the government. But if you make a huge amount of money, you get all of that other than what you pay in taxes. And, and that wasn't the predominant model before. And it meant that you know those cultures had to know that every night they went to bed, you'd better wake up you better be able to wake up knowing that the world might have changed negatively. And that level of individual risk has been removed from the system. And so people do what they're going to do without the fear that if this deal goes wrong, I'm not just going to have egg on my face reputationally. I might lose my house. I might lose my income. I want to ask you about another one of your uh, of, of the issues you've written a lot about, which is front and center. Now uh, we're taking on a huge amount of debt. Uh, we're spending, you know, the deficits are really larger than at any point since World War II. You have, for a long time, uh, when this happened in the after the global financial crisis, you were saying basically, stop worrying. Really, deficits don't matter. Is that fair? And right. if so, explain. I think it's that deficits don't matter at the point at which we're spending. I mean, clearly there's a point at which the load of debt would be unsustainable. I just think that that load is multiple times greater than the current amount. And I think that's where people have kind of misunderstood the amount of debt with the cost of debt. So if interest rates are 10% and you take on a billion dollars of debt, you're, you're paying $100 million a year in interest. If the cost of capital is 1.2%, you know, it's $12 million. And that sort of means like the amount of money you borrow is entirely related to the amount of interest that you pay on it, the cost of that debt. Same thing when you buy a house, right? People, yes, they think about the cost of their house, but almost nobody buys a house. They get a mortgage that allows them to live in the house and the cost of that house for them is how much money they have to spend monthly to service that mortgage. And I think that should always now be the criterion. Zach Carabell, always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, the book is terrific. Um, I see it behind you there, Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power.
Next on GPS, Russia wants to dominate the Arctic, especially now that much of it has melted and Putin's plan seems to be working. I'll explain when we come back. And now for the last look. For their first face-to-face meeting, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov chose to sit down not in Moscow or Washington, but in Reykjavik, just a few degrees of latitude south of the Arctic Circle. It's a fitting location, as the Arctic itself may prove to be one of the biggest areas of disagreement between the two Cold War rivals. Before this week's meeting, the two men traded barbs and accusations about it in the press. Lavrov warned the West to keep its hands off the Arctic, saying it's long been well known to everyone that this is our territory, this is our land. And Blinken said Russia was making illegal maritime claims and warned Moscow not to militarize the region. On that note, it may be too late. You see, in recent years, Russia has been busy modernizing and growing a network of military bases on its Arctic coastline. Along with the planned deployment of new high-tech weapons, that amounts to an unprecedented Russian military buildup in the region. Also high on the Western list of grievances, Moscow claims that its territory in the Arctic extends beyond its maritime borders and into international waters. So why is there all of this wrangling and posturing about an area you may think of as an empty, frozen wasteland? Well, because it's not entirely frozen anymore. As global temperatures rise due to climate change, more and more of the Arctic is becoming navigable for longer and longer periods of the year. Russia, with the world's largest Arctic coastline, wants to take full advantage. It wants to assert control over what could become a major shipping route along its northern coast, linking Asia to Europe. In theory, cargo could travel between the two continents twice as fast this way as it does now when it passes through the Suez Canal. This northern sea route is a potential game-changing revenue stream for export-dependent Russia. It could ship its oil and natural gas directly to Europe and Asia without having to rely on pipelines. Its territorial claims could also allow it to tap into the vast reserves of natural gas believed to lie under the previously impenetrable Arctic ice. According to the U.S., Russia has already begun to demand that foreign vessels traveling the route use Russian pilots, and even that they ask permission to sail through what are really international waters, threatening to use force against ships that refuse to comply. By former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's own admission, the U.S. is late to the party in countering Russia's assertiveness. And that balancing act is a tricky one. As the ice that acted as a natural barrier protecting Russia's Arctic coast melts, Russia is concerned it will become more open to attack. That means the militarization of the region that is already setting off alarm bells in Washington is likely to continue as the sea ice recedes. Secretary Blinken's meeting with Lavrov and his five-day stay in the region shows that many in Washington are now taking this matter very seriously. They know this could become one of America's biggest foreign policy headaches. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. 
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.